Uh, listeners, let me paint a picture for you. I've got a very stressed Annabelle crab here. But I am lounging on a bed. I know. So, like, we've hidden in the spare room uh, of my house. I have a spare room at the moment. It's kind of, like, amazing. It's, and, like, yeah. I'm still forcing my children to share rooms so that I can have a spare room. It's ABC Fat Cat, cat lives in oversized house. <laughs> With two meter by two meter guest room. Yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, I can't be expected to 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 nap in the in the in the auxiliary games room or the pool hut. <laughs> but um, we're sort of hiding because there's my one of my kids is home sick. There's just bloody there's um, uh, any second now the person who's coming to um, take away my dead sofa uh, will be getting arriving. Um, I feel sort of bad for coming over because you're stressed because you're on oh, deadline. Oh, no, this is the most fun part of the day. Oh, really? Oh, but, God. yeah, look, I am on deadline. Uh, well, I'm not I'm not on deadline. I'm just – I can glimpse the deadline from here and I know that things are about to get really bloody ugly because I agreed several months ago to, to write a quarterly essay. So I'm writing a, um, an essay on – something that really puzzles me that has puzzled me ever since I wrote The Wife Drought, which is why don't men take parental leave? Like it's really bizarre in Australia how few men do. And um, like so of the public scheme, which of course we've had for about sort of eight, uh, about eight years now, um, 95% is women. Like, And there are lots of sort of private sector companies that have got um, parental leave schemes all women, like about the same proportion. And there's something interesting now happening with big companies um, starting to direct their um, parental leave schemes more towards men and encourage them to take it up. But it's super, super low. And it always makes – it puzzles me because I think, you know, like we talk about inequity in the workplace and stuff like that um, and normally in the way that it affects women – but, like, this is a real area of inequality. Like, mm. all of the parental leave and flexible work schemes um, in Australia have got a great big pink coat of paint. Mm. And I don't think you're really going to change that much for overworked women until you have a look at the fact that men are constantly given overt and covert signals that they should not be changing the way they work exactly. depending on like when their families change. And also I noticed there was a piece in the New York Times uh, recently which sort of harks to the themes that were in the wife drought. Wait, how many years ago did the wife drought come out now? Uh, four years. Okay. No, five years. So, five years. So it's you know, about time I've put myself through the hell of another <laughs> writing project. And uh, it was about um, the, and you wrote about it very well, the um, continuing inequity in domestic labour in the home. Yep. And it was a really good article, actually, because it went through the usual excuses because it was basically like, okay, men are aware that this is the case, that mm. their wife does more at home, and yet things don't change. Why Why is that yep. the case? <laughs> um, and they ran through the sort of typical list of excuses that you tend to hear. For example, things like... Um, well, you know, she asked me to do the kids' lunches and then she's not happy with how I do them because right, they're not yep. done well enough mm-hmm. and so I just let her do them. Um, and, of course, the women were climbing the walls like, yes, because he fills them with cheezels and tiny teddies and so, you know, blah, blah, blah. They didn't say tiny teddies because it was an American piece but, you know, that was the gist of it. And I love that you've clarified the tiny teddy <laughs> detail. I would have hated for this to go to air with that shocking inaccuracy. I just want to make you've it clear that my boy's father makes them beautiful lunches <laughs> with salads and and. Um, vegetables and, and fruit. I'm not having a go at anybody here. But, um, yeah, it it just sort of debunked all of that and basically just said the reason that that doesn't change is because 
if you if you get to come home and not do stuff and your wife does it Sounds all. Sounds good. Well, exactly. I'd love to be in that position. So there's a structural, real major structural barrier because it's not in men's interest to change it. So basically yeah. it was saying, blokes, you know, if you really do believe in equality for women, you've got to start picking up some of that load. Well, yeah. I mean, the, there's like a terrifying, terrifying um, graph that um, I'm sure is shit, including in this essay, um, which is put out by Jennifer Baxter, who's a great researcher at the um, – uh, Australian Institute for Family Studies. It's uh, it'll be in the quarterly essay, so hang on till September and grab it. But basically, this this graph um, shows what happens to women's lives when they have children, and what happens to men's lives. And it's such an interesting graph because it tracks um, housework, childcare, and paid work. And so the women's, like it just just goes, it's super jagged. It actually looks like someone having a nervous breakdown. Um, <laughs> so um, from birth, uh, the woman's paid work goes down and then it kind of gradually comes up again over the ensuing 12 years but never quite gets back to where it was. And her housework <laughs> goes zing, like it sort of pretty much doubles. And then it sort of comes down a bit but – not all that much, and it certainly doesn't ever get back down to where it was before she had kids. And then the childcare goes zingity zing, and then it kind of like goes down a bit over the ensuing 12 years. The men's one is oh my God, it actually just makes you laugh out loud in disbelief when you see it because basically the housework just goes along. It doesn't change at all. Like, so it's about 15 hours a week. And I wrote about this in the Wife Drought. It's like there's some kind of global international, well, no, just Australia-based actually, international con- – um, stop saying international because you're just talking about Australia. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you find that when you're stressed sometimes your brain yes. just – Yeah. Okay. Um, it just stays at 15 hours a week and it just potters along. Like nothing changes, right? And then um, the paid work also exactly the same, 45 hours a week. This is an average um, – and um, so there's these two straight lines that just keep on keeping on. doesn't really matter what happens with the arrival of kids. Those two parts of life, housework, paid work, exactly the same. And the childcare goes up um, a fair bit but then comes back down. And so, like, yeah, it's just the greatest graphic representation. And, like, I think um, – look, I think the, the, the men and parental leave thing is complicated because I think, like, we tend to have this argument as an argument. We're like, can you just pick up your goddamn socks? <laughs> what are you doing, you know? And so it becomes – because of the way our relationships work and you, you fight about this stuff, you know, it becomes – and here's where I say that Jeremy is excellent and he is very, very great at um, – sharing domestic work, which is why I can work as much as I do because he is awesome both with kids and um, housework. I have never met a man who is better at laundry um, and also school forms, which is like great, a godsend. Seriously, even if I liked nothing else about him, I would love him for the fact that he knows where the school forms are and he puts them in and he, you know, puts it in the diary and, oh, my God, oh my God <laughs> it's so good. Anyway, so um, – but I think there's a real argument that is not, you know, men are bastards here. It is like, do you know what? Like there are structures, both formal and informal, that stop men from having the same access to things like flexible work and parental leave in this country that are a massive part of the problem. And I just – you can't 
unpick things for women who are doing twice the amount of the domestic work and so on until you unpick that aspect um, of work for men. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, I was just going to say actually also just while you're talking about Jeremy, just to give credit um, to my former husband, which was that piece that was in the New York Times that I was just yeah. talking about. I didn't mention it to him or whatever, but he'd obviously seen it, seen it and he texted it to me and said, <laughs> I just want to ask what could I do better? Huh. And I thought that was that was that's all really that anyone would like from their partner if is to be aware of yeah. that yeah. and to you know at least appreciate yeah. that the other person is doing you know a yeah. bit of load but yeah. then ask like well is there something that I can do to try yeah. to ameliorate that issue um I was going to talk about this in the next um, episode that we record, but I might talk about it now because it actually fits well. Mm. Have you ever watched the documentary series Seven Up? Okay. Um, I think I've watched the first two, but a long, long time ago. But right. there's a new one out, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So at the moment on SBS On Demand, just so if people haven't heard of it, it's a documentary series that started in 1964. The director's a guy named Michael Apted, who's a very famous Jeez. film director. Yeah. He follows a group of kids in London, in England, um, in who are seven years old in 1964, and then they go back every seven years and do an update on their lives. Um, yeah. So seven up, fourteen up, and so forth. Sixty three up is about to come up. They're, they've all just turned sixty three. God, it's amazing. How old is Michael Apted? Just by the way, he reckons he may. This might have to be the last one. He's in his eighties, I think. So it's it's unbelievable. And so I'd never seen it before, and I've been sick with a cold, and so I had a few days in bed, and I noticed that all of them were on SBS, um, and so I thought, oh, well, I'm never going to get that opportunity again, so I might try and watch it all. Is each one just an hour or is it a series? I can't oh, remember. Some of them more than an hour. Um, <laughs> the first one's about an hour yeah. when they're seven years old, but then as they get older, you know, it's they've got more to talk about and so forth. Um, it, was, it was just – I can't even tell you how moving it was watching it all. And I watched it in a way that I think you probably – shouldn't watch it which was the binging of it yeah because it's very confronting to see adorable little seven-year-olds and then you know yeah. matter of hours or days later you're walking looking at 56 year olds having hard lives or whatever yeah the people who were who participated in the documentary series over time felt really torn about it because it becomes very famous and it becomes increasingly famous, of course, the longer it goes because it's just so right, unbelievable. because everybody's unique. heard of them and, and the characters become sort of, in some cases, famous for their misfortune. Like the Neil guy oh. is famous for being the most heartbreaking man on television, right? That has to be one of the most devastating things ever captured. He's the cutest of the children. He's this adorable, sunny, just gorgeous little boy. By 21, he's in the grip of serious mental illness by 28 up he's a homeless man it's it's it was really hard and to is take he still it. in it in the last yeah one? and he does sort of um he always has problems he's always on the margins of society but he does find a way to sort of manage himself um but they all of course at seven they were signed up by their parents or their teachers or whatever and then right. it's, yeah it becomes you know the defining thing of your life and so they have varying degrees of difficulty and resentment with that and of course every seven years Michael Apted the director comes in asks you lots of personal questions about your mm. life and for mm. some of them it churns up lots of, of things of course yeah um so and of course every other five minutes they'd be asked to attend a documentary conference and talk about what it was like exactly, to, you know, be, to be in it so um so they have these mixed feelings about it. But one of the men in it, Nick, who's a scientist who's 
they're all wonderful. Like I just, I, you know, this is one of the things they object to. They feel like people know them when they don't. I feel like massively fond of all of them and I don't know them, but I feel like I know them. I can't wait to see 63 up. Um, Nick says that they, they all feel a little bit upset too that the documentary doesn't really represent the fullness of their lives and what's going on, um, but people who watch it feel like it does and that's all they are is what they see in the doco, so they all don't like that. And so Nick says, I feel like um, it's not a true representation of my life but that it is – a true representation of every man, of every person's life. Right. And I thought he just absolutely nailed it because that's how I feel watching it, that it's like this the chance to survey the landscape of a life yeah. and to see the way people develop over time, all of them, regardless of circumstances, was interesting. One of the things that struck me was how regardless of your circumstances, whether you've got money or not money or whatever, that the sources of – um, that life is just profoundly hard. It's always a hard slog, mm. it seems, for everybody, punctuated by moments of joy. And the things that tend to cause joy, regardless of circumstances, are the same, which is largely your relationships with other people and how yeah. much purpose you find in what's going on around you and your ability to connect with others. Um, the other thing that really leapt out at me was how um, – 35 up, 42 up and 49 up, I found the saddest. And I think it was because everybody nearly was having a hard time because those are hard times in life because you often have, if you have your family, you have young children or you maybe haven't had a family and you you don't know if you're going to and you're worried about it. Your parents are starting to die or be ill. Yeah. If you've moved away from home, you realise maybe that you have a new life and you're never going to really be able to get back home. Yeah. Um, and you're at that point of life where you you stop being excited about what you're going to do when you grow up and you yeah. look around and you go, okay, this That's is it. That's right. Yeah. You've, you've had to let go of your dreams and stuff like that. So, yeah, so that was – I found those episodes really sad and – but then when so they, they hit, turn around a bit, like yeah, so I'm, they, you know, as a person in my mid forties, yeah, kind of, that's you know, how I felt. Um, yeah, fifty six up. Yes, they did. Um, it they did start to you, you, because you, I think it seemed to me like at a sort of an acceptance hit where they felt like, well, this is how my life turned out, and that's okay, and I'm all right with that. And the thing that was amazing, you can see everyone's a bit more settled in they accept where their lives are oh, and they see. That's good to know. Yeah. And also because kids, get, kind kids of get older. And, like, yeah, I felt relieved because I, I do think when I look back, I was talking to a friend about it, talking about what do you think's defined each decade of your life and um, 40s for me have been so difficult. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm hoping it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> I actually picked up a book the other day that because uh, you know like I think you've had a probably a tougher forties slot than I have. I think everyone, I, all, it is yeah, hard, all my friends, yeah. I reckon around this age, it's a hard age. Yeah, I because reckon. you know you've got um, kids, you know, and that's so absorbing and wonderful and demanding and introduces like this whole new series of worries into your life, right? Or you haven't had a family, yeah. or you haven't met somebody, and you yeah. feel worried about that or or not or you're trying to get resigned to it like there's so many things yeah. at this age that yeah. can you know. uh it's um it's 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 full on it's pretty hectic um i picked up this book called the happiness curve why life gets better after 50 yeah it's written by a guy called jonathan rauch rauch i don't know r-a-u-c-h um and it's a great concept right like so he's i think addressing 
these issues and like saying, um, you know how like when you're having a tough time in your life, it's really hard to ever imagine things getting any better. And I think like um, I always think about like that time when you've got a newborn baby and, and, you know, like feeding isn't going very well or whatever and, you know, no one's sleeping and you're just like – like part of the terribleness of it is your complete incapacity to understand that this probably will only last for a few weeks. Like, yeah. you know, the concept of time is so inelastic in those circumstances. Oh, yeah. You just think, no, nah, it's just never going to be. It's always going to be this shit. Yeah. <laughs> this is what my life is like This now. is my new life. And, yeah, yeah, I know, which yeah. is so dumb. And, like, you can even if you step back for one minute and get some perspective, you understand that that's not true. But when you're in it, it's just impossible. And I think that's one of the most pernicious things about depression as well is that you feel terrible. You're in this kind of profound pain and you cannot even imagine what it's like to not feel like that. You just yeah. All you can see in front of you is this endless tundra of just feeling terrible. Well, that's one of the things that why I think, 7-Up is a bit of a public service because yeah. Neil at I think it's 28-Up, yeah. might be 35-Up, one, one or the other, um, I mean he is in t- a terrible state and he yeah. said Michael Apted says, what do you think you'll be doing in seven years? And he says, I think I'll be walking the streets of London homeless. Yeah. Um, and Michael Apted says to him, you know, do you – do you ever worry that you might be going crazy? And Neil says that I might be going crazy. I know I'm going crazy. Like I don't wonder. I know I am. And But then when they come back at the next seven years, he's volunteering in like a local council and he's living in the Shetland Mm. Island. He's sort of found this community where he can fit in. Mm. And you think, man, that's amazing. There was another character who I adored named Bruce who was this quite shy but just the nicest, kindest person and he chugs along. He always would like a family and he's, and he's a he's got a really great degree from Oxford but he wants to be a teacher. He's got yeah. a real sort of service. He's a very caring sort of guy. Yeah. He's a teacher in the East End and then he goes to Bangladesh, teaches there and he really would like to have a family and 35 up you just – I was watching it just going, oh, God, poor Bruce. He's just – he's never getting married. He's way too shy. And Yeah. Anyway, 42 starts, Bruce sitting there waiting to get married. It was almost bloody howling. And it was just – it was wonderful because it was one of those things where you feel a little bit like – I don't know, all those – like I never used to be very big on weddings and births and stuff like that and now I absolutely love them because I think that those <laughs> moments of genuine joy are fairly – you know, yeah, I guess be... that's why people mark them, I suppose, yeah. in that way. Yeah. Um, did you notice any difference – and I'm like now I'm, of course, going to waste some more time by going back and watching this whole series because I really have <laughs> oh, only shit. seen the first couple and not for many, many years. Um, do you notice any difference um, in the way – that the women and the men reflect upon themselves? Like, a, is there any gender difference to how good they are at kind of... That's a good question. Um, no, not that I... I mean, I've sort of... It's framed the explorations around class. Yeah, so I've tended right. to be watching oh, okay, it yeah. on a class basis. Um, no, I didn't necessarily notice that. I did notice that the people that came from moneyed backgrounds and... Uh, sort of reasonably stable families just had a general level of confidence that stayed within right. their whole life. Yeah. The two boys who'd been spent time in a children's home in London both lacked confidence throughout their lives. In right. fact, one of them is 
has lived in Australia for 40 years. Really? Yeah, he came as a teenager to Australia. Wow. He was a Brickies labourer in Victoria. He's lovely, Paul his name is, and he had the good fortune. He married this just fantastic woman, um, Sue, and she's just been – they just seem lovely. They just have a lovely family and she's sort of helped with his confidence, but that's dogged him his whole life. They have an interview with him, you know, when he's seven – and he really lacks confidence, and that's huh. just stuck with stuck oh, with him the whole way through. But then there's Jackie with the rheumatoid arthritis. She, um, God, she's so smart. She's so smart. There's this great bit. It's very awkward viewing where she calls out Michael Apted on the way that he portrays them and that he's used them and that <gasps> the assumptions wow. he makes about her life. And you think I'm miserable because I don't have much money and you think I'm an object of pity and that's how you portray me and that's not what I'm like. And wow. don't you make the mistake of thinking that's what my life's like. And how and old is she when she says this? She's 50, I think that's wow. in, is it, no, that might be 49 where she's like that. And she says, when you asked me in 28, you know, blah, 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 I was furious and she really lets rip at him. Um, and she's like, I'm never going to, you know, you come here and you want to know about my relationships and I'm never talking about that and some of the others do and they let you in and I will never do that. And she just rips him. Wow. Um, then, yeah, it's great. It's, it's quite uncomfortable because it's – and she has this uneducated woman from the east end of London absolutely nailed yeah. what Michael Apted has done and well, has achieved. Like, I guess it's like when you – I mean, when you write a feature article about somebody or you portray them in a like a, a, a TV – like even if they're just part of something that you're – you know, a story that you're doing, you are. Like I always feel so – I find it really stressful to do that mm. because you're aware that you are representing somebody. Mm. And like when I that when I wrote that um essay about Malcolm Turnbull, I found that the most stressful part of it was just you know trying to I mean y- you develop as you get to know them, you develop theories about them. Mm. And just like any um you know bad scientist, you kind of are drawn to the things that 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 demonstrate your hypothesis yeah. and you kind of try and ignore things that don't. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a terrible thing. And, um, of course, the most awkward thing is if you reach a conclusion with which your subject doesn't agree. If you enjoy Chat 10, you can visit it. Well, that's going well. <laughs> If you enjoy Chat 10, you can visit it. <laughs> what my friend is trying to say is if you enjoy Chat 10, you can visit our website, www.chat10looks3.com. What are we actually saying? I can't remember. No, no, keep it Like, this is gold. Keep it going. <laughs> Okay, visit visit our website. You can follow us on iTunes and leave a review. Um, Our website, Chat 10 Looks 3, just Google it, you'll get there. We've got a link called Bedside Table where you can buy books. Sometimes we have merchandise. You can download the podcast. Um, It's about it, isn't it? Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. You're the greatest. You're so good at this. We're just, as always, ranging all over different topics. When I when I had my little plan mapped out, now we're changing it because it, I feel like this leads us into the Will Anderson. Oh my god, I was I was about to say exactly. That's why I asked the thing about gender because both of us. So <laughs> it's so funny. Both of us became aware of the Will Anderson interview with. Andy, Andy Lee. Lee at the same time. There's a and, podcast called Willosophy. Yeah, yeah, and I've been on it, and it, like seriously. It goes for like two hours. He interviews somebody for two hours and as as we nudged into the second hour of the one that I did with him, I'm like, come on, mate, like – 
when do I get to go? <laughs> but he's obviously, you know. Um, but we both became aware that he'd done this interview with Andy Lee and that it became about um, Will's past bullying, essentially, of Andy Lee. And I, as soon as I heard about it, I'm like, I am, I am there. I really want to listen to this. And you had exactly yes. the same reaction so, independently and now yeah. we've both listened to it and we haven't talked about it. So what um, – just to quickly bring the <laughs> listeners up to speed. So I, I wasn't aware – were you aware of any of this backstory? I wasn't. But nope. So um, Hamish and Andy, when they broke onto the scene, Will Anderson was already quite an established um, comic and performer and he had a show on Triple J and – he used to just mercilessly, mercilessly take the absolute piss out of Hamish and Andy, particularly Andy. Because Hamish and Andy were like on TV. I can't even remember. Was it Channel Nine or I don't know? They had a show that was sort of like a uh, a kind of an ensemble of comedians. But then the network decided to call it the Hamish and Andy Show. So they went from being sort of part of the cast to being like the super superstars yeah and sort of like overnight successes right but, and that you know. seems to have bent a few people out of shape and and will, will anderson, anderson became the voice of that right and so he just mocked them for being talentless and you yeah know, blah 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 and andy and they so they they discussed this and andy andy lee is the one who raises it i mean it's it's riveting listening oh, completely um and they both came out of it i thought i i came out of it with a lot of respect for both of them. I've never yeah. met Will Anderson. I've met Andy Lee numerous times and I adore him. Um, he – it was really brave to raise it. Yeah. And they both deal with it really directly and Will takes a lot of responsibility for acting like an ass. Yeah. But the thing that was interesting when they went through it was you never really hear people talking through like we, you know, we had a, a falling out or a difficult relationship. Why was that? Yeah. And what struck me was how – so much of it was sort of based on misunderstanding. Oh, where Will was totally, going yeah. on sort of hearsay from friends of yeah. his and then Hamish and Andy were responding to, you know, their feelings were, were responding to what Will was doing when they'd yeah. never met Will right. either. And they were just like, who is this guy and why has he got it in for us? Yeah, and um, Will Anderson raised the point, which I thought was really, really interesting, which is that – the perpetrator sometimes in these things, you know, the perpetrator gets over it faster than the victim because the perpetrator goes, goes, oh, I've changed my mind. I was wrong about Andy yeah. Lee. Therefore, everyone should get over it. Yeah, he very easy to do when you're the perpetrator. Yeah. Much harder when you're the person who's been the butt of joke after joke after joke. For right. Years and yeah. Years. Um. So that was that was really interesting, and I guess also just um, I don't know the the sort of. It just was sort of sad to think like, oh, you know, so it started from a misconception and then it led to, you know, Andy Lee had clearly been quite hurt, I thought, by it. Yeah, he was pretty frank about that. And then it turned into this kind of really lengthy professional mutual kind of destruction. Like they, yeah, you know, Andy Lee was pretty frank about how when, you know, they started their radio show, their main thing was we want to destroy Will Anderson. Like, yeah, because he was in the – He com- was up the, against them. Yeah, yeah. In the And they did. And yeah, and he <laughs> but, said that they – I mean, I guess that's the thing, you know, and, and Will Anderson said as well because, I mean, it's a very intelligent discussion because Andy raises the point – You've had to address this because we became really successful. If we had stayed right. nobodies. That is a f- really interesting part of yeah. the discussion. Would it ever have played on your mind again? Because Will Anderson talks about how he's, it's sort of eaten at him for years and years and years and it's partly because you can't get away from Hamish and Andy because right, exactly. they're everywhere. Um, and, and then so, Hamish yeah. tells a story about somebody else, like another comic who he doesn't really see much anymore who um, 
had a go at him on Twitter or some, or, or reminded him of some piece of assholery he'd committed against her. Mm. And he talks about how he was just genuinely surprised because he just hadn't thought about her forever. And, you know, and I guess it's just a, re- it's a really interesting study, this c- conversation in injury and mm. reparation. And sort of forgiveness as well. And it's a it's a really good conversation because you hardly ever hear people having it and also you hardly ever hear blokes having it either. Yeah. And I just I've there were it, it's just a fascinating, fascinating exchange. The other thing that I found really, really interesting about Andy was um before they get into this stuff, and like there is this one moment where Andy's right, you can hear him being like are we going to go there? Oh, okay. yeah. Here's, I want to say something. Yeah. And then that's where it starts. But there's about half an hour before that where they're talking about, you know, the experience of, um, you know, Andy Lee and what he does. And fascinatingly, in parentheses, Hamish has already done a Will podcast where they've talked for two hours not and about didn't raise that, it. right? Yeah. Like, so it's – I haven't heard that one, but I want to go back and listen to it. Um, so – that is so interesting. Yeah, I and just I, I loved the boldness and the um, just sort of bluntness of Andy Lee to just yeah. go. I just am not going to ignore this elephant yeah. in this room. Like it was just fantastic. But the other thing that Andy was talking about beforehand, which I found so interesting, was his experience of being part of a couple, like a part of a comedy yeah, couple. Yeah, that was fascinating. Too. And, the whole thing was great, and because. What they're kind of well, what they're addressing directly in this conversation, which I guess people probably tiptoe around a bit, is um, what they're talking about is is Andy being sort of like the sidekick, yeah. which I don't think is right. But he talks about look, you know, um, the discussions that they had or the arrangement that they came to where. You know, he says, oh, Hamish does a lot of the comedy lifting. He's sort of mm. funnier than me. I'm not the straight man, but I'm aware of where I am in the yeah. relationship, which is so interesting to hear someone articulate that and also not have any kind of complex about that in any way. Like, it, 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 I thought that he was incredibly intuitive and I suspect that that is a big reason why that relationship works. 100% agree. And I thought – the emotional intelligence he displayed in understanding that, okay, this is Hamish's strength and therefore I will sometimes um, bowl a ball to Hamish yeah. and not create take a laugh myself to, because yeah. I know that if people are laughing at Hamish, they're laughing at us. us. Yeah. And um, it was he just – He totally got it. It yeah. was such an emotionally intelligent understanding and um, – and explanation of how that relationship works. And it actually made me think about my relationship with you. Same here. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. I've just made me think how much I despise you. <laughs> but the thing it made me I, think how much I'd like to replace you with Andy Lee. Actually, but I know, but. Yeah, shit, be, yeah, all right. Well, I can – having just watched or that Hamish Lego Wars too. series, oh, yeah, I'm it. now in love with Hamish Blake, yeah. which I know I'm running late because, you know, everybody else <laughs> is already in love with that man uh, or one of them or both of them. Um, and they both are just completely adorbs. So, yeah. you know. Um, but I – one of the things that is so great about – this podcast is like even on a day like today where I'm just like I'm just flat out like a lizard drinking I'm so stressed I'm kind of close to the edge but already after talking to you for half an hour I feel fantastic do you know what when I walked in I thought because I could see how stressed you were I thought (laughs) oh god I just I don't know if I should just not walk straight back out here I I seriously (laughs) thought maybe I should just go this is I think maybe we should just pull the pin 
But then now you're absolutely right. You, you always feel better at the other yeah. end of it. And the thing is, like, um, you know, I often think it's interesting that, like, in some ways the podcast is sort of like you could classify it as work. You know, we get together, we create content. Mm. And if it was a radio show, this would be a job, right? Yeah. Um, but part of the magic of um, partnerships that work is that they actually are labour-saving yes. devices. Like I actually never feel like um, what we do is work in any way. And, in fact, like if we did a radio show together – it would be a hundred million times more easy than doing one by yourself because oh, it's massively. just sort of like an Bizarrely, intelligent it, understanding of heavy lifting and how to make it lighter. It's like levers or something. Bizarrely, even though doing this expends energy, I will leave here feeling like it has given me energy. Yeah, correct. It's very strange. It's like a yeah, it's like um, an energy generation device. And I guess that one of the interesting things about listening to Andy Lee talking about his working relationship was um, I got a se- sense of the same sort of thing, the way they kind of feed off each other. And I also was really sort of touched actually by it wasn't sort of for show or for an interview. I felt like I had a really s- strong sense of their relationship and mm. also the fact that he would constantly name check or sort of say, oh, you know, uh, well, Hamish thinks this. Or mm. <clears throat> And in the discussion about the what it's like to be a comedy couple, um, he actually said, oh, look, I actually think it's something that Hamish has struggled with more than I have. Right. Which is um, interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. They, look, they also um, – the other thing that stuck with me that made me think of us was he talked about the way listeners uh, re- relate to them and he said people yeah. will write to them and say – I'm serving in the military. I saved all the podcasts up for when I deployed or whatever. They they get the same sort of feedback from their community yeah, that right. we get from ours. Just quickly before we go, because you raised Lego recipes, Masters. Potentially. Lego Masters. My kids adored it. Yep. And one of the things I like about Hamish and Andy is that I feel that their humour is good natured. Like they will take the piss out of people, but not as never as much as they take the piss out of themselves. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um and I love their their friendship is just so sort of I hate the word infectious, but that it's it, it, they feel like you're their friends. Yeah, like it's just yeah. and they just they laugh about things that are just silly and no one gets hurt and it's just I really love that. And yeah. the Lego show I loved because it was just a heap of nerds playing with the world's greatest toy in the most amazingly creative way and all of the competitive things and the backbiting and undermining and crap that you normally see in shows like that isn't there because everyone's just blown away by everyone else's Lego creations and yeah. I just loved it. The yeah. kids adored it. Yeah, and also Hamish was like brilliantly aware of the genre yeah. and like, you know, and he was kind of um, making – um, jokes about how, you know, what they've borrowed from MasterChef or whatever. Like, Hamish is a massive Survivor fan. Oh, I've gone on their show God. to talk about Survivor. Of course you have. <laughs> um, but he, there was this just moment that made me fall over laughing where something terrible's happened, like somebody's thing has fallen off their dinosaur or whatever. And um, <clears throat> he wanders over and he goes, geez, you know, I'm pretty new to this uh, reality TV hosting gig, but this has got the feel of an ad break to me. <laughs> We laugh so much. And also the other thing about the Lego, because, yeah, my kids, I'm sorry, there were just weeks and weeks where we didn't watch you at all because you were up against the Lego show. Sorry, mate. Um, so my kids just get a bit sick of your, you know. I'm sure they do. Your ball-breaking ways. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, let's hear Auntie Lee do a conducted interview about superannuation policy. <laughs> or there's the Lego show, like whichever, yeah. Um, 
I also have now completely capitulated on saying Lego instead of Lego, which is what I said when I was brought up oh. in Adelaide. Oh. Well, the free oh, settlers call it Lego. <laughs> but not- you've completely gone backwards on calling a female colleague a ball buster. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, my, I've been consistent on that. <laughs> anyway, you're concerned. Um, anyway, uh, there was also a villain in it. In the Lego show? Yeah. Which one? Oh, that dick bag that constantly. The called, short guy. He in called himself. Yeah, yeah. The one that dresses like a jockey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, dude. Yeah. Um, yeah and he, he called was... himself a DILF in uh, the first episode. He said, I have been called a DILF. <laughs> uh, whereupon my 12 year old daughter asked me what a DILF was, and I couldn't think of any way around it. Mm. So I just told her, and she was scandalized. <laughs> It was a real R-rated moment. But Jesus, of- we all loathe that guy. Sorry, um, God, I'm, I hope he's not a listener, but um, yeah, he wouldn't be. Oh, my God. Um, Very low self-awareness and just yes. kept being a dick to his, to partner. his partner. I agree, yeah, to and, his partner. Oh, wow, just like oh, – and his name was Kale. That's That's right. the other thing. Kale. I thought you liked As Kale. As in the vegetable. I thought you liked Kale. What? <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> Who keeps it when they're called Kale? Anyway, and he was just like – Ah, oh, you know, in those reality shows, there always has got to be an absolute dick bag that you can't stand. Just so you can, I mean, right. my kids would be like jumping on the couch, which is why it's now dead, um, yelling like, go home, Kale. Because <laughs> he just would ignore his, he'd, he'd be wrong about something yeah. and he'd say, no, 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 I'm making the dinosaur this big. And the partner is like, mate, that's too big. It's supposed to be Lego scale. No, 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 no. I've got a feeling. And right. so, or he'd like, yeah, there was one where they had to build an apartment and they couldn't agree. Oh, that was so he's just like, oh, I'll build my half and you build your half. Like, yeah. no idea yeah. of what the team is like. And, and the partner, the partner was, right. was just adorable. Yeah. Like, he was just like constantly, I don't know, were, were they friends? I don't know. I just, anyway, in the end, they got sent home and um, Kale's uh, said, well, yeah, no, I don't mind. I don't mind. I've, uh, I've uh, learned a lot about myself in this series. Um, I've learned a lot about what I can do. Turns out to be a lot. <laughs> I just thought, oh, that um, man needs to be reprogrammed. I love those boys who were the sort of in the late oh, teenage years. Oh, I my just, God. Oh, God, I hope my boys have a best buddy like I that. Know. That was great. And they had so much fun. Oh, they and they'd were be just, stressed and they left they everything awesome. to the last minute and then they'd just be like, oh, that, oh that they were so good. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that when they're, you know, 50, they'll go, God, do you remember that time we went on that Lego I TV know. show? It was it so good. It was yeah. just great. It was good. Okay, I'm going to hit the kill button. I love you, buddy. <laughs> 